I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I write and lecture about things like existentialism and phenomenology and truth and beauty and the meaning of life. Yeah, and you uh, are somebody who's listening to a podcast, and that podcast is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. And what's that? That's a philosophy and comedy podcast where we look at terrifying questions, and we think about them, we talk about them, and we try to find our way to a place where we and you can feel courageous. So what's our terrifying question? Um, so our question today is, do we have to lie? Hmm. Um, and joining us today to help answer this question uh, is Tara Hernandez, a showrunner, executive producer, and television writer, best known for her work on Mrs. Davis, Young Sheldon, and The Big Bang Theory. And Mrs. Davis, uh, you should watch it. It's an action comedy on Peacock, and that raises deep philosophical questions about God and artificial intelligence. So thanks so much for joining us, Tara. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'm one of the, the, uh, the co-hosts of this podcast, so I wanted to do this one to deal with a question that, um, for sort of personal reasons, troubles me. And basically, it's it's kind of related to to what I just said about TV writer with a PhD in philosophy. Like I started out, my mom always wanted me to be some kind of a scientist, um, and truth was super important to my parents. They were always like they would scold me really bad if I ever told a lie, and. Um, I got into academia, where at least it seemed to me at the time that people were super motivated by truth. Um, and then I got into um, Hollywood, uh, 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 an environment famous um, for for insincerity and and lying, and and maybe in a deeper sense, just about something different, like about creating stories that entertain and make money and please people rather than being true. And I feel kind of torn about it. I feel just like I'm not sure. I feel kind of like I don't know what where I stand. And this really came to a head because I had this problem where like in my job, I was often called upon to laugh. And sometimes it would be things that I either I didn't think were funny or they just didn't honestly make me laugh. But I didn't want to be like a sourpuss sitting around not laughing when everyone else was laughing. So I went to an acting teacher and I said, hey, what should I do? I'm in this situation where like, I don't want to be a sourpuss. And, and sometimes to, you know, to just in the interest of honesty, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, it might be somebody with some political or economic power over my life who's making a joke and I want to laugh at it. And I found it, it difficult. And at some point, there was a point in my life where I thought, I think, I think I thought it was wrong. But then my views kind of changed. And I thought, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's perfectly fine, but I'm bad at it. So I got some training and what she said, she's a teacher in Hollywood named Leslie Kahn. Um, and she said, you should just think, I really like you whenever the person says something that you want to laugh at. Hmm. Well, I really like you. So I'd think, I really like you. And then sometimes I would laugh or sometimes I would smile or sometimes I would kind of lean in and touch the person's arm. And I was like, this is good. <laughs> but then I thought, maybe this is bad <laughs> because maybe I'm just getting completely corrupted and learning to be a, like a big old fake. So I'm not sure. So so I felt like why don't I can uh, uh, like I convene my personal like council of Elrond here um, <laughs> because you're from these two communities. Um, Tara, you're like a really impressive, super successful writer and and Hollywood businesswoman and creator and producer. Um, and and I really respect that. And I really view you as like an impressive person and. Uh, Taylor, you're a really impressive person from the other side. You write these books that are very 
very sincere about these deep philosophers. Um, so I kind of want the two of you to have at it and I'll just figure it out from what you say. Like, like, is it, is it, do we have to lie? What do you think? What do you think, Derek? Well, I, I, you know, do we have to lie? You know, because the way Eric sort of framed this in the context of the, the creative. So Eric brought up the example of being in a writer's room and where, laughing at jokes or, you know, engaging with storytelling that maybe he didn't feel personally engaged to was like survival, mm. you know? So as he framed that, it absolutely feels like, well, to do this job successfully, one has to display disingenuous emotions. So I will say, you know, I, I come from having shared a writer's room with Eric and been mm. in this creative space with him and, you know, I'm now, as he's telling this anecdote, sort of spiraling a little bit because hopefully the listeners of this podcast have experienced a true and genuine Eric Kaplan laugh and it feels really good and it feels really gratifying and it's like big and hearty, just like he is. So I've sort of had that like, oh, wow, you know, if I get Eric to laugh at a joke, like I'm, I'm really something, you know, he really enjoyed that pitch. But now I'm sort of like, oh, you know, he, he went to training. He didn't share this with me when we were you know colleagues in a writer the training was really recent it was like two weeks ago so don't worry okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay i was gonna say maybe you could do a fake laugh for us so we can test it against the ones we've heard before and see what we're dealing with here <laughs> oh taylor oh you <laughs> i just think i really like this person uh, okay that's <laughs> i really like that, this person the second one was actually genuine that doesn't sound like the eric laugh i know no 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 and i will say you know because this has now become a space to talk about truths Eric laughing at his own pitches, his own jokes in the space of a writer's room, which tells me is like a really healthy sort of moral center if he's thinking, I really like this person. This person has a great comedic pitch right now. So in the space of what the example that Eric just laid out in, in the creative space where you're engaging with people whose egos are just as sensitive and fragile as your own, our own, I would say it is a necessary skill set to really engage with the material. If you are not the leader, if you're someone who's there to support a creative vision. And yes, I think that probably does come with a level of dishonesty. I think okay. there's etiquette and politeness in just about any professional setting. So in academia, people are doing that kind of fake laughing and, and I mean, even lying, frankly. I mean, there's all this disingenuousness in any professional setting. So whatever the values of your scholarship may be, there's also just administrative daily life, which is probably the same in a lot of different contexts. Uh, <clears throat> there's less hierarchy in academia. So there's less boss underling relationships that you have to negotiate. You have a lot of independence if you're in the faculty and you've got administrators. But I mean, in some ways that makes the social terrain more difficult to manage because hierarchy makes everything clear in a certain way. And in academia, you've got a lot of egos banging around against each other. But I was going to say, I think there's maybe a difference between the fake laugh and the lie because um, there's a difference between just making a fake thing or doing a fake thing and then passing it off as real. You know, when you laugh, you're not saying, I'm laughing because I think it's funny. You're just laughing. And people laugh when they just see each other. When you said, imagine you're thinking, I like this person. People who like each other, who see each other, they see each other and they laugh. You'll notice people laughing for all kinds of reasons other than they think something is funny. So in a way, that kind of laugh can pass the test, even if you think lying is wrong. That kind of thing is going to be relatively benign, I think. 
What do you think, Tara? Relatively benign? I guess if the truth is never uncovered, it's relatively benign. Because if you revisit the same space or tell the same joke and then suddenly it doesn't get that reward and you uncover that someone's been <laughs> untruthful oh, I see. with you. Yeah. <laughs> then um but but that's I mean that's that's layers deep. I think we're kind of maybe uh blurring the lines between like politeness and uh lies and maybe further defining those will be helpful to the conversation. Well Taylor, you're good at defining stuff. Can you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but and one thing that occurred to me uh, like I was thinking about various like ways to weasel out of this issue. And I thought, well, one way to weasel out of this issue would be to say, when I'm laughing in a Hollywood context, everyone knows it's insincere and therefore it's okay. But I think that's a strange position to find the discussion to drive me into because then why is everybody doing it? <laughs> like, like oh. that seems really weird. Well, if everyone is like, like if everyone is like, it's kind of like, how are you? I'm fine. Like, how are you? I'm fine. And like, clearly that's not a lie, even if you're not fine. But then why do we do it? Well, why isn't it a lie <laughs> if you're not fine? It sounds like it is a lie. Why isn't it a lie? Yeah. Because I think nobody thinks it's true. Well, that just means like, it's I guess, a... <laughs> I guess I feel like a lie is something like an intent to deceive. And you figure you've got simply... some chance of succeeding in deceiving them. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I find the fake laugh thing kind of makes me nervous because I do think... Like you, you said something vulnerable, and I think it's true that it's like I'm kind of hoping when people laugh at my jokes, it's because they think they're funny, not because they're jollying me along. And if I were to wake up and and say, like, "Hey, Eric, nobody thought you were funny ever. They never thought you were funny." That's Here's a harsh thing. To affidavits say. from every one of them. They were just <laughs> doing it to make you happy. I'd feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. it is a sort of a, a the kind of deceit that makes you feel a little bit unsafe. I think when the professional setting is in, if in the business of making funny stuff, then somebody's fake laughing. It's much more harmful than at the faculty meeting, where who cares? But yeah, so more's mm -hmm. at stake there in that kind of, in that example. There's also like these, like I think they're genuine lies that are a little bit more borderline cases. Like um, I think the haircut looks great, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, or I like that dress on you, or something like that. I mean, that could be false, but you could be saying it to sort of spare somebody's feelings. And I mean, I'm not advocating it, but um, people do it. And and even if even if the truth is not necessarily that they hate the haircut or the dress but maybe they're just indifferent about it you're mm. still kind of technically lying if you're saying i think it's great i think it looks wonderful that could still be false and you could be deceiving them to save their feelings so there's a whole class of lies about you know the truth you can use the truth as a weapon or as a mm -hmm. to injure people and i think that's why lies start looking like maybe a kind of necessary instrument for civilization. I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that if you actually abolished all lying, civilization would collapse. So I'm going to go down for, yeah, lies are necessary. doesn't mean they're mm. great, but. Yeah, I think as a sort of, as we're talking about what I would say now, we're defining politeness maybe and just paths of least resistance yeah, yeah. and general politeness, I would say lies are you know lies are necessary yeah for, like polite society 
Um, but I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to like coming at it from the creative field, which we'll say for the purposes of this discussion, I represent and, you know, you Taylor come from academia and, and Eric's somewhere in the middle. And just as far as is truth, what you're striving for in academia, because we're looking at like subjective and objective humor versus facts and reason and theories and is there a field where it's more acceptable because you know it's really objective what is funny yeah oh i see it is objective what's funny subjective what's funny subjective oh i thought you said the opposite i was gonna say oh this is that's what we should be talking about is sorry sorry is is humor objective i see that would be a real, real That's uh, a opinion. good topic. <laughs> I kind of think that, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Full disclosure. <laughs> there have been philosophers, as we know, who've said, you can absolutely never lie. And I think it's an untenable view. St. Augustine yeah. said this, and don't ask me about the details of his view, because I don't know. But um, Kant apparently said it, but scholars disagree about whether he really meant it or if it conflicts with other things he said. Or... Do they think he was lying? That's one of the things that I was thinking about. That, like, there's all these people who say you should never tell a lie, Yeah, but they're probably just lying to make other people be honest with them. Well, the pious lie, one great pious lie is that you should never lie, I think. Um, right. And I think it is mm -hmm. pious because I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to tell kids never to lie. Um Mm -hmm. But it is a pious lie, because once they grow up and you get older, you say, well, never. I mean, you can sort of qualify it a bit. But you have to give children fairly simple kind of railings and guidelines at first to sort of help them get in the right direction. And you can later on say, you know, it's not never. And and depends on what kind of lie you're telling. Mm -hmm. uh, what you're lying about makes a big difference. Somebody, it was Benjamin Constant, who criticized Kant for thinking that you should never tell a lie. And he gives this example of the axe murderer comes to your house and says, where's the person, you know? And according to Kant, Constant says, you have to tell him where they went. And Kant replied to this and said, that's right. You should never lie, even in that situation. And that's what creates the big scandal around mm. Kant. To think, well, Kant, who's such a genius, who didn't say this elsewhere, why did he say this? Maybe he was losing his marbles in old age. No. There's a whole bunch of different theories. On one view, what he meant was that only when the person is sort of authorized to demand the truth from you somehow are you obligated to, to tell the truth, which oh, is interesting. slightly more plausible. And others say, no... Christine Korsgaard thinks that there's one version of Kant's theory, the categorical imperative, which means you don't manipulate or exploit people. And that requires actually that you never tell a lie with the intention to deceive because that's a kind of mistreating somebody. That's a disrespecting them. And mm -hmm. that's a kind of powerful, I mean, I just still don't think it's plausible to support the universal prohibition against lying. But that's that gets at the heart of what's bad about lying because think about being lied to. That's We don't like that. And we feel disrespected and misused by someone when we've been willfully deceived that gets close to what's i think morally bad about it right so even though i say civilization depends on it it's because i think there is something at, at the kernel of it which is really yeah yeah maybe civilization is bad well well <laughs> let's take a little yeah. break because these are getting into deep waters but i think it's interesting so come back everybody and listen to uh, tara hernandez and taylor carmen and me talking about do you have to lie Oh, 
Okay, we took a little break. Not really, by the way. That was a lie. We, we're really right here. So this, there's lies completely woven into this podcast, unfortunately. The whole podcast. We've been lying about that. Tara, what, did you, what do you think about that axe murderer case? Well, yeah, I, it sort of spun me out into the fields of like, uh, I guess, like espionage and intelligence and torture for information, sort of where, where my head went. Um, but then, you know, Taylor mentioned you are obligated to tell the truth to mem- to to those with yeah, authority. Yeah. Those who have a right to demand the and truth of you, more or less. Yeah. Then that feels like a very slippery slope, you know? So now I, th- I think about the writer's room and it's like, if my boss is like, do you think this joke is funny? <laughs> um, yeah. I, and, and in that case, I would absolutely say, yes, I absolutely think it's funny because you, boss, laughed at your own joke. So 100%. Um, but then that makes me then think even further to is the truth sometimes more hurtful than a lie? Cause you said who hasn't been hurt hearing, you know, that they were lied to, but I would say, you know, the, the knife cuts equally as deep if you're given a hard truth. So I guess I still remain wavering and terrified by this whole yeah. entire topic. Yeah, me too. Cause here's one of the things I'm thinking. So there's a boss, hypothetically, who hires the two of us, and or let's say the three of us. You can be in the thought experiment too, Taylor. It could happen. Thank you. Um, and this boss wants to know, presumably, if his show is any good, right? <laughs> so that's part of our job. And yet, part of him doesn't want to know if the show is any good. Mm. He just wants us to laugh and be yes people. But that's weird. What's going on in the human soul that people, like, you know, there's that song, you know, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Mm -hmm. Like, but why would we want people to tell us (laughs) sweet little lies? Because it makes us feel so unsafe to be deceived and disrespected. Like, what's going on? Here's where it's tricky, because if you are performing surgery and you are, uh, you know, leading a, a surgery where, you know, it's someone's life and death is in your hands and you want to know am I doing a good job in that situation there's kind there's probably very clear yes and no black and white there's a right way and there's a wrong way presumably Mm. I know nothing about surgery or the medical profession but we've all seen a hose and there's such a thing as a hose that has a hole in it and basically the three of us kind of think that heart surgery is kind of like hoses it's kind of like hose repair so I'm going to get, give you that. I think that's true. <laughs> I think there's a right and wrong. Is that hose yes. connected or not? <laughs> yes. Yes. Is it connected to the valve? Am I using this? Am I pointing it at the right? A very small thing? hose system full of blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So then we talk about the creative space. And again, we're getting into, which I'm going to say, and apparently Eric disagrees, is subjective. Mm-hmm. And we are being hired to push forward a creative vision that is not our own and the best way to do that is to validate the vision of the creator and pushing it forward and i think only when called upon specifically called upon and maybe even then (laughs) we weigh the pros and cons it is the the question of do you like this do you think the story is good I would say, do you like it? Do you think, do you want to keep moving it forward? And if they say yes, then yes, I also want to keep moving it forward. So I guess I'm not trying to weasel out. I guess I'm trying to make apologies for the the creative fields versus other professions or areas where there's 
clear lines between right and wrong, life and death. And I maybe I just don't find the arts that important. It could be that none of it matters. Yeah. Like that's let's just, let's just pin put a pin in that because that might be the right answer. Yeah. But I think that's but it. I feel like like just imagine it did matter. <laughs> you know, like, okay. like imagine, okay. for example, like, uh, okay, let me, let me sort of put myself in there. Like I'm pitching this show and it's about a lawyer. And here's, here's how I set it up. There's a, there's this lawyer. I say all this stuff about the lawyer. It's clearly a self-insert for me. Like it's a guy with glasses who used to study philosophy. It's clearly me. And it, the point is he has a crush on a secretary and all I say about the secretary is like, she's gorgeous, but she's one of those women who's gorgeous and doesn't know she is. So it's sort of like, this is a terrible script. <laughs> it, 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 it's about a love story between two people. And because I'm being a patriarchal sexist boob, I don't realize that I haven't given any subjectivity to the character. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I'm asking people, hey, what do you think? Like, part of me feels like deep down, what I'd really like is for people to tell me that I mean, perhaps kinder words than it sucks can be found, particularly by professional writers. But but it'd be cool if they conveyed to me, you know what, Eric? I think I think you know you didn't write your female character with too much subjectivity. She doesn't feel like a person, mm -hmm. and and I feel like those people would be doing me a favor and doing the audience a favor too, because the audience, you know, young women don't need yet another comedy that objectifies women and young men don't need it and nobody needs it. <laughs> you know maybe the people using the show to sell soup need it but surely they can sell soup some other way you know what i'm saying like maybe like if i switch if i switch the chessboard and i'm like would i like to be lied to yeah about a creative project and let's just assume it has some importance not as much as heart surgery but not just zero like is it would it be wrong to lie to me in that circumstance well, I don't know. Do you feel like you're like, I'm Larry David. And that's the whole point is that, you know, I, this is, this is satire and I want to, I'm, I'm poking fun. Like what lens are you coming at it? If you were like, this is true, honest storytelling that I'm just playing straight down the middle, knowing you, I'd probably say like, Eric, have you looked at this? And I kind of think maybe you're better than that, <laughs> you know, knowing a, you. Right. And that would be really nice of you to do that. Assuming like, yeah. Let's say in my mind, it's a charming romantic comedy, <laughs> you know, it's, okay. not, it's yeah. not subverting. It's, it's, I think I've written a really charming romantic comedy. I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I, I started, I started to take a lot of walks and it started to come to me and I came home quickly and I wrote it all down and I think it's really charming. It's really sweet. And it's not <laughs> like, I kind of want people to tell me you're wrong <laughs> like like what you said you're better than that that's that's a nice thing to say the plight of many a dictator is that mm -hmm. they don't have good friends to tell them the truth and they get in a bubble what happened to those good friends i wonder yeah <laughs> right mm -hmm. <laughs> what a coincidence when I started out my dictator job, I had all these people willing to tell me the truth, and now they're not around. Who, I'm doing what a, could have happened? I'm doing a cutting of the throat gesture on the screen. Yeah, yeah. So, Ta um, Taylor needs to have a, We need to have a, some honest feedback with Taylor about the role of uh, hand gestures yeah, exactly. in an audio podcast. I keep podcast, making hand gestures. Which is really limited, yeah, honestly, exactly. or perhaps zero. <laughs> well, I heard the theater director, Peter Sellers, once talking, and he said he had a costume designer who, when he saw somebody really badly dressed, would say, that person has no friends. Uh -huh. Because your friend would say something. 
something, (laughs) your friend would tell you. And Peter Sellers' idea was that artists have this role to the society is to be their friends by Mm. telling them things they might not want to hear. But, you know, that is a good friend. You wouldn't want to be surrounded by people who are never giving you the truth because, yeah, it's a terrible thing to do to somebody. They're they're then really cut off from reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the power of lying, too, is to cut somebody off from reality. I mean, when you feel that you've been deceived, you have that sense of, like, there's this chunk of the world I was being robbed of. I wasn't mm-hmm. seeing what was going on. Yeah, so there's ways of telling the truth, gentler and not so brutal. The thing about this hurtful about this, some kinds of truth is that it's so straightforward, so direct. Like I heard somebody also say that if you give a talk and somebody afterwards, you know, if you say, especially if you ask them, yeah, what did you think of my talk? And they say, I liked your talk. That could very possibly mean they didn't like it. Mm. And you just have to accept that that's very possibly what's going on. But it would be very awkward to say, what did you like best about it? You know, and, and want the, you know, get the gratification of the compliments. Uh, but if somebody comes up to you after the talk and says, um, I didn't like your talk, then you feel like you're being attacked and you would think, I could take it for granted that you didn't like the talk, but why are you going out of your way to tell me that you didn't like my talk? You must have it in for me. (laughs) There must be some further malevolent motivation behind it. Well, this is getting really confusing to me, guys, because it seems like we feel unsafe when we're lied to and we feel unsafe when we're not lied to. It can be either one. Here, let me give you an example on the other side. When I was in India once, I was with this group of people and we all got sick from something. I think it was the water we were drinking at lunch or the food or something on a leaf that was had something growing on it. Anyway, everybody, like 20 people, all got this terrible stomach thing. It was really awful. And we were staying at this place and somebody said the next morning there was a woman there who lived there. And they said she was up, I can't remember if they said all night, but late into the night praying for you. Now, this is not my religion. I don't have religious belief. But I was so moved by that. It was really touching to hear somebody say that she was up late last night praying for all of you. And I really felt taken care of just by hearing that. Now, it wasn't even her telling me. And then I had the thought, well, I had two thoughts. One is, what does that even mean? I mean, maybe she prays every night. And so for her, praying for you just means, okay, and them, and I hope they get better. And maybe it's not a big deal from her point of view in terms of effort. (laughs) And then I had the next cynical thought, which is, Maybe that was a lie. Maybe it was a polite lie. Maybe it wasn't even true. Mm. And I kind of found that I didn't care that much, actually. I felt like the saying of it was a gesture, an expression of concern. Mm. And I was glad they said it. And I wouldn't want to really know. So suppose it's a lie. I kind of think I didn't feel deceived by it, really. I mean, I felt like it was a kind of indirect expression of care. Do you think it's easier to lie to people we don't have established relationships with meaning because what that got me thinking is there's sort of these we'll say like circles of yeah you know truths and there's people i feel yeah. really obligated to tell the truth to yeah um and then it sort of diminishes as you move away or you know our relationship isn't as tight so it's very easy to say you know they were up praying for you because it's probably not going to be interrogated. Mm-hmm. Right. You're more of an idea than an actual relationship. And is that okay? Or do we need to treat everybody absolutely equally across the board? Yeah. Eric, you can remind me. This is more of a Confucian idea. Or no, I'm thinking of... Um... This is the famous argument between Confucius and Mozza. Yeah. That Confucius says you have very specific duties to people based upon what your relationship is with them. Yeah. And Mozza is more like Christianity. We're all brothers. Mm-hmm. We should all treat each other 
sisters, siblings. We should all treat each other uh, the same. And I think Mencius, maybe, who's a Confucian, sort of said mm-hmm. you should try to sure expand the circle of concern. So he tells some emperor who's feeling bad about a cow that's getting slaughtered. And he says, concentrate on that and then try and take that and apply it to the, you know people and mm. widen the circle a bit of your concern. But that kind of seems to me to concede that you have to kind of start at home, as it were, and build out rather than just having a blanket categorical requirement that strangers as well as loved ones are all equally deserving of your mm. honesty. Mm. Although I, I know people who lie to the closest people in their lives till they take the dirt nap, you know, I mean, because there's so much um, at stake. Yeah, the stakes are a competing consideration, as we know from the heart surgery example. The stakes are so high with surgeons Mm -hmm. that they don't tell you gentle white lies about how you're doing as a practicing intern. They tell you exactly when you're getting it wrong and getting it right. And I was thinking just a minute ago about that example in connection with philosophy, because in philosophy, there's been a real culture change in the last 20 or 30 years. It's gotten much more polite, and I think it's because we're terribly gender imbalanced. There's way more men than women, and so we're making efforts to be more welcoming to people and feeling like they can participate and they don't have to play this macho game of deadly counterexamples. So the culture has really changed a lot, but some people, older, and I'm kind of on the cusp, I guess, sometimes feel like this is all good. Some people don't think it's good, but I think it's good, but there is a price you pay which is you don't have as many of these really revealing moments where a little rough and tumble back and forth really opens up a new point that you never would have seen if you hadn't had that agonistic competitive spirit. So there's a lot now of after the talk, people will preface their questions with a lot of padding, like, Mm. thank you so much for the talk. I really enjoyed that. And here's what I'm wondering. What kind of idiot would mix up? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Um, yeah. yeah. So so that's the thing that, Executives are taught in Hollywood the compliment sandwich. Uh Mm -hmm. Yes. Tara, could you explain the compliment sandwich? Do you know about this? Right. That's an extension of what Taylor's saying, which is start with the start with the pad, the bread. Yeah. Then then the meat being the we'll say criticism of the truth, which is the notes, and then finish with more pad. Oh more bread. Finish with padding. Well, like when I'm on a low carb diet, I kinda wanna throw away the bread because (laughs) I'm just like, you know, Eric. Your hands, you got great hands, man. <laughs> Second act didn't work. And and you're pretty tall. And I'm like, okay, this is offensive. <laughs> <laughs> you you clearly number one you think my second act didn't work and number two you think i'm such a baby <laughs> you have to compliment me on my hands which is not relevant but is it bracing do you get tara do you kind of like like a tough wrestling match <laughs> where people like honestly it's like it's very situation dependent like i sort of feel like it's so expected this this compliment sandwich that you're just hearing the well look we're just we're really we're really happy with the show and you're just like say the but like say what's what's coming right you know like if my doctor pulls me in and says and, and I guess all my examples are medical but if my doctor pulls me in and says like we need to have a talk it's like well you know your hair looks really nice today it's like <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah, I have cancer like tell me tell it to me straight so you know um I guess I, my, my question back at, back at Eric being pretty pro, like tell it, tell to me straight is like, I feel like a lot of this discussion is fear based is our own internal fear of misstep or receiving the truth. And if you, Eric feel like a pretty fearless 
person and that like, you know, maybe not like you're going to fight a bear, but just that your, your ego uh, and your kind of your center and how you feel about yourself is so strong that you're equipped for a truth more than the average Jeff. Oh, I don't know if that's true, but I think it's almost like I have so much fear of the other option that it terrifies me. Like, okay, here's a story, which I kind of like, I think it's called the tree of knowledge by Henry James. And it's about this sculptor who's called the master. And he's just a master of sculpting. And he's really famous. And he hangs out in Italy. And people say his sculptures are great. And his big supporter is his wife. And even when the tide turns against him, and people think his sculptures are actually crappy, she stands by him, and he dies. And the punchline of the story is she knew all along. Mm. She knew all along he was a terrible sculptor. And I was like, I, I'm really yeah. afraid that that's true of me. I'm really afraid of that. So that's why I'm just like, tell it to me straight. I mean, it's a little bit like your example of the cancer, like the cancer phobia. The, the person who's like, tell me if I have cancer is afraid of the cancer mm -hmm. <laughs> more than they're afraid of the ripping off the bandaid. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't spend my life writing terrible stuff. <laughs> Here's another really interesting case that I just remembered. This book, I think I mentioned this in another podcast episode and got the title wrong. Oh, no. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. Ah. And it's about a brain surgeon who winds up with cancer. I don't think it's brain cancer, but he's a brain surgeon, super competitive, knows all about everything. And he talks to his oncologist and he's asking her all these detailed questions about all the tests and all the results. And he wants to know everything because he wants to sort of be in the driver's seat. And so he says, what next? What's our next plan? What are we going to do? But he talks about how she would then put a limit on what she was going to tell him. And she said, I'm the doctor. Mm. You're the patient. And you have to learn how to be the patient. Mm. Because in the point of view of the patient, we can't get ahead of ourselves. So he was saying, like, how, how long do I have? And she said, I'm not going to make a prognosis. And he was saying, he knew that you can make a pretty good prognosis. But she was saying, we're not going to talk about that yet. In other words, just what you tell a normal patient, which is, I'm going to tell you this much, but not this much. And we have to go slowly. And it takes a long time for him to accept the wisdom of this, mm -hmm. which is that he had the desire to know the facts, which was actually going to be very bad for him. Oh. Um, because it would cause more anxiety, more second guessing, more disappointment. And he wouldn't be able to concentrate on the things he needed to concentrate on to do as well as he could in the short term. There's a complicated example, right? I mean, was she lying to him? She was concealing information. She might have been sometimes lying to him. She might have known something that she told mm -hmm. him she didn't know. I mean, I'm not sure about that. But he, he talks about it from the patient's point of view, which he had to learn how to do and undo all his yeah. truth-seeking, really ambitious truth-seeking instincts as a surgeon. And he was like a world-class surgeon. So he was like prided himself on being the best in the business. But it was a whole different thing to be in this other position. So truth is, oh man, it's so complicated. It's a, We value the truth. It's easy to say you value the truth and then how you value it. There's one more thing. I'm sorry, this is, the thoughts are rushing in all at once. But the other thing about the writing case seems to me it must be the case that you want somebody in the writing room who's going to be just like the doctor, constructive with the way they balance the truth and maybe a little polite concealment or equivocation so that you can keep working together. Because I can imagine somebody who's so brutally truth-telling that every time you present them with something, they go, meh, mm -hmm. eh, I don't think it works. I don't like it. I don't like it. And pretty soon you might think, I can't work with this person. <laughs> right? It's true. Uh, maybe you just don't share enough of the goals. But maybe you could have worked with them if they had learned how to be a little bit more nuanced and diplomatic. And mm. maybe they had very good judgment. But if, they, if their first instinct is to just tell you the unvarnished truth, it just might make it hard to keep 
trusting what a different aspect of their judgment about which truths are worth harping on and which which ones you might just let them go. Right. Because I think we're all, you know, I'm as you're telling the doctor, patient, surgeon story, you know, I, I'm kind of feeling like, oh, wow, I'm a real hypocrite because I want to be a receiver of truth. I want to be someone who is told I have spinach in my teeth when I do, mm. but I have an incredible amount of anxiety around pointing out someone else has spinach in their teeth, yeah. you know? And, and so if someone was a person in the room who's saying that's not funny or I don't like that, A, that's <laughs> incredibly unconstructive right. uh, to, to the creative process, but like getting up the nerve to correct them on their behavior. That's where my anxiety would exist. So it's kind of like, if we all feel that same way, we want to hear the truth, but we don't know how to to regurgitate it when it's necessary. Then we're all kind of just stuck, I think. Well, everybody is afraid. Yeah. Let's make that our first axiom. And then what can we do to create environments that are safe enough where people can be told the truth. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. sort of concretely, like what would be a good, like what kind of rules would be good to lay down? I mean, you know, I think, I, I think one thing would be this, that to, to be lied to is to really feel disrespected. And it seems like this is just very abstract, but if you create a space in which it's very understood and it's kind of reinforced that everybody has respect, uh, then maybe you can sort of tolerate a lot more truth telling because it won't it won't threaten that underlying respect right the respect is there and in fact really good friends you know that you have when you can argue with a really good friend and you can disagree me and my friends in graduate school used to really have it out mm -hmm. only very rarely did we really get irritated with each other but you knew because you were sometimes laughing and sometimes joking and um but you could handle a lot of truth telling mm -hmm. and i think in some of these seminar situations or colloquium situations it was often like that there was a lot of rough and tumble but there was a jovial atmosphere about it so everybody knew that they were basically respected in spite of what people were saying i heard a story about jerry Fodor, who's deceased but who's one of the most colorful characters in the profession who in the middle of a talk and you really don't interrupt a talk in the middle of it but in the middle of a talk he interrupted to say are you joking is this a joke <laughs> and i I've only heard about this second or third hand, so I think it just stopped the person in their tracks. And everybody, Jerry Fodor was a very funny guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was very well-loved in the profession. I'd like to know how that ended, but um, you you could imagine that might be okay as long as everybody was on board with the idea that this wasn't really disrespecting the person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Somehow. So I'd say respect. I put in a vote for basic mutual ground floor, reinforced respect by other means than just truth-telling, right? I mean, that's only mm -hmm. that's only one way to respect somebody is to be honest with them. There's also lots of other ways. What do you think, Tara? Like, I wonder, like, you're like, oh, no, I'm a hypocrite, but maybe people were not treating you with enough respect or making you feel safe enough to be entitled to your truth-telling. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of comes back to the Confucius example about, like, who do we really rely on? What are safe spaces mm -hmm. to feel like it's truth, obviously, with, you know, my husband, my family and, and friends. And then I would say co-workers like Eric, who I worked with for, you know, almost a decade. There's just like a real trust there. And then for me, it almost kind of like is this 
maybe like bell curve of like, then there's, there's sort of the people you have more casual relationships with who I'm probably more likely to just want to establish ground level politeness and would be less likely to say the truth to. And then there's like full strangers where I feel like I would say the truth to, because what does it matter? You know, it's not kind of this like linear structure maybe for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it sort of feels like in the space of academia, you're kind of looking at like, I'm considering this, this a really trusting environment. So it's all about how, how you feel. So I think I'm kind of both those people. I could both be polite and, oh yeah, your haircut looks great. You know, there's nothing in your teeth. But if it's some space that I feel incredibly safe in, and that's disappointing, I guess, to kind of unpack that it's like based on my own ego and safety, because whose responsibility is that, you know? Oh, I, I, I don't think it's entirely your responsibility if that's the... Right. Right. Um, let, let's take a little break here and then come back. There's so many interesting things to talk about, but I, I, I'm feeling more calm than I was that's at good. the beginning of the conversation. Are you, Tara? In truth. No. <laughs> no. Okay, thanks for uh, your honesty. Brutally honest. Okay. <laughs> so we're back, and I think that the joke you just made, since you're editing it, you should put it in the show because okay. it's funny. <laughs> I was thinking it would be funny to just, as you see people randomly, every time you see them, you can say, by the way, there's nothing in your teeth. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing, there's no spinach on your tooth. And <laughs> they might say, why are you telling me this? I could say, I'm just being honest with you. It's just the truth. I'm just being honest. Yeah. <laughs> they might wonder if you don't say it, whether, you know, that might be your way of telling them that there is something there if you don't mention it. Yeah. I, one of the things I, I, I think one of the strange things that the, um, like the kind of overly pious approach to truth that both of my parents kind of gave me is sometimes like people get a lot of credit for some tricky way to technically not be telling a lie, even though they are. Mm -hmm. And that's an enjoyable puzzle story, but I don't think it actually has much to do with ethics where you're sort of like, mm -hmm. I said, I didn't have a gun on me. Aha. I had a knife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, great, I guess, but <laughs> you didn't tell a lie. Good for mm -hmm. you. But it seems to be a silly thing. Right. <laughs> like much of the law strikes to me as being this sort of like a weird way to evade the obvious purpose of a rule in order to, oh. to ab abuse and exploit people. And it's like, I don't have a great alternative, <laughs> but it's a worrisome thing. Like, why is that considered to be like a success? That we came up with a rule and you came up with a very sophisticated way with the help of a lot of brilliant lawyers to do the thing the rule was trying to prevent people from doing, but you didn't break the rule. <laughs> it was like, oh, good, I guess. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Because who created those rules and then based on who are those rules serving? Like, we're talking about murder, of course. It's pretty cut and dry. <laughs> don't, don't find clever ways to get away with murder. But beyond that, it's sort of, I think you can look at who are rules serving and what are ways to to circumvent mm -hmm. certain things and there's like a, a, an amount of pride like it's an obstacle course right. to, to navigate society and, right and and not be a sheep yeah 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 that's true what's a good example of that i think that's totally i true. don't yeah every time you've got a law as more explicit the law is the more there will be fine-grained ways of dodging it and getting under the wire so these cases are sort of everywhere. The way people avoid committing perjury, mm -hmm. you know, by being very careful what they say or the words they choose. 
Um, mm -hmm. But there's always the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. So you can still, I think, get prosecuted for perjury if you are clearly deceiving the committee or whoever, the judge. There's always going to be a lame claim of like what I said was literally true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know why. And I, I like to have this conversation with like, I have a very reputable accountant so i don't need the, the irs looking at me but i feel like she's often mm -hmm. opening accounts to like okay well this just let's open an ira over here and let's shift this money over here just to sort of circumvent or take advantage sure. and that's purely based on her knowledge that's her job that's why i pay her to do that but is that Yes, it's all technically legal, but there is some like maneuvering to everything that always feels like a little bit strange for me. And then I think like, okay, I'm okay with this. Imagine when you enter different tax brackets and suddenly you have an account in, in the Cayman Islands that's definitely illegal, but it's like you can see the slope to, okay, well, I'm glad she knows that because I would have known that as a pedestrian and, and now we're moving money around to avoid or to do, you know, certain things. So again, all above board. Right. Yeah. And it's funny that uh, this is all related if we live in a web of lies, because <laughs> I once was fact checking a magazine and what they, the example they gave me was that there was a magazine that had referred to some big business person oh. as a tax evader and a giant libel suit was brought against the magazine. And if the fact checker had just known to change it from a tax evader oh. to a tax avoider, huh. it oh. would have been no yeah. libel suit at all. But then you're like- <laughs> Evade and avoider but, but, are virtually but, synonyms. But, 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 yeah. but hang on, what is this whole web of prevarication? Oh, it's like, what good is it other than protecting <laughs> people who don't want to pay It's probably because the word evasion is used in, I'm just guessing about this, in the actual um, articulation of the law. Mm. The law probably actually refers to evasion and that's got a legal definition. Right, but it's it's almost like, like if we were all getting together and we all had to put in some food for our picnic and somebody didn't, you'd be like, come on, why yeah. didn't you put in food for our picnic? And you'd be like, I'm sorry. And if they said, well, I, I put it in, but then I took it out, you'd be like, yeah, that's not what we meant. We know it's, I, I put in a big sandwich. Yeah, but the second afterwards, you took it out and you ate it. But I put it in. I'm not lying. And you're like, well, you're a ridiculous person. <laughs> We're not going to picnic with you anymore. <laughs> I had a bit of an epiphany in, a few years ago when Elizabeth Warren was cross-examining somebody in a Senate hearing for the guy from Wells Fargo Bank. And she was really raking him over the coals. It was really almost hard to watch. I didn't really feel sorry. I almost felt sorry for the guy. <laughs> not quite, because he was clearly guilty of cheating people out of all kinds of money by getting them to open non-necessary checking accounts with other mm -hmm. fees. And, oh, look, we're providing you with this. And he was the you know architect or one of them of all this. And she was laying into him and he was sitting there listening and nodding and seeming just quiet and humble, like saw this coming or didn't care or whatever. I don't know what he was thinking. He didn't seem like he was being shamed at all. And it suddenly occurred to me, I should have known this from a long time ago, that, that he's in the business of doing this. He's in the business of testing the rules. And what is for some of us called cheating is in his world called innovation. I mean, for him, for him, I think these were innovative new products. <laughs> but then you realize right. that, and I happen to know a few people with, well, one person, I won't name him, huge amounts of money, unthinkable to me. It dawned on me that something about him that always I had trouble with is that for him, his career, his business was really close to like, how do you game the system? Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. And I thought, man, that's kind of built into the system, at least 
whatever capitalism or whatever it is, is that you're you're in the business of testing the rules and pushing the boundaries. And and in that culture, yes. that's actually admired. It's not so no wonder he didn't feel embarrassed. He got caught. And but it, it made it a little more intelligible how he could have such contempt for the legal side of this, because the legal side looks so naive, like you broke the rules. And I think sure what he's thinking is everybody breaks the rules. That's how you win. Or I, I was promoted six times right. for this exact behavior that right. I'm being yeah. raked over. So if we live in a world where fraud prospers, yeah. and it's it's sort of connected to living in a world where force prospers, because I think, you know, lying to people and hitting them on the head are two different ways to make them do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so if we live in a world where there's sort of unchecked violence and unchecked lying, how much should we accommodate that? And how much should we kind of like stand up to it, do you think? I mean, I always like start small. I think it's, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, be the change mentality. And so I think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in in action for me, what I'm kind of coming away from this discussion with is treat people the way you want to be treated, quite simply. So if I want to be mm -hmm, yeah. there's spinach in my teeth and hear that, and it's okay to then go out into the world and know that like that's okay, and it's not going to be impolite or negative, but is just that's how I would want to hear it. I'd want to hear, you know, if my script mm -hmm. sucked or my show sucked, um, you know, just from someone's opinion. Um, so just acting in, in putting out more of what I would like to receive myself. And that's all I can do. So you're, you're coming around to maybe we don't have to lie. I'm coming around to, it's still situation based, but I think people can handle more of the truth than maybe I give them credit for. That's interesting. So you're willing to take that risk. We'll see. I'll let you know how this week goes. We'll see. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> What do you think, Taylor? Is well, I was just remembering when I said, don't ask me about the St. Augustine view. I just remembered one more thing about it, which is that he says you should never lie. But he also does say, so he doesn't believe in the necessary lie. He says no lie is necessary. But he does think that torture and violence and killing people is sometimes necessary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he put fraud above violence in terms of like how bad it is. Now, that seems kind of crazy. But it reminded me that, you know, in Dante's Inferno, the the people really down at the very bottom of hell in Satan's mouth are the traitors. It's treachery and and deceit and lying, which is worse for Dante than violent. Mere violence is somehow not as bad morally. And now I'm not going to sign on to that view, but I think the idea behind it must be that there's something deeply undermining and poisonous about duplicity and deception. I mean, a, you know, just brute force violence can be a local thing, it, but lying can be the systemic poisoning of the well that you don't know who to trust or what to trust. And it's maybe more of a threat to the overall health of the culture if there's just a sort of decay of truth-telling and honesty. That may be what's guiding that view, even though, like I say, I wouldn't sign on to it that uh, it's okay to torture and kill people sometimes, but you should never lie to them. That sounds perverse. <laughs> but you were asking me more a personal question about, like, what do I think? So I think, yeah, as a matter of fact, lying is unavoidable, probably always will be, but it makes a lot of sense to try to push things in the direction that dishonesty and deception will be less necessary, and it'll be easier to be honest because it doesn't threaten people's sense of dignity and respect and so on. Hmm. We've talked about this before, but Eric, you've often brought up this really good point, which is that the reason that's a perilous course is because as more and more people get more and more honest, the few real clever 
deceivers have more game, have more prey, and more opportunities to take advantage of right. people. Right, um, but that works for the force example as well. Sure, sure. If if people are gentle, yeah, then the you know person willing to hit you in the face gets more gains. But I don't know if that's a reason not to be gentle. It's not. No, I think that's what makes it difficult. That's a challenge is that you will have to face the prospect of being a victim right. sometimes. You might have to like run a real risk if you're willing to, to make things safer. You know, just one little story I wanted to end with because I, I think it's really cool and I've kind of changed my opinion about it is the um, Joseph Conrad story, Heart of Darkness. And it's about, it, actually, the movie Apocalypse Now was based on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kurtz is an agent, I think, for the Belgians in the, what's currently the Congo. Mm-hmm. And Marlowe, who loves truth and he's committed to truth, goes into Africa. And he's trying to figure out what happened to Kurtz. And what happened to Kurtz is he committed horrific genocidal crimes against the native peoples. And then he's ultimately killed and his last words are the horror the horror so then marlowe goes back to london on another river and he the thames and he he meets up with kurtz's fiance and kurtz's fiance has one question what were my boyfriend's last words before he died and he says his last words were your name and then mm-hmm. as he leaves, he's thinking that even in London, he's in the heart of an immense darkness. Mm. So mm. What, what do you guys think? Because I think I've changed my mind on this. Uh-huh. Should, should he have said to Kurtz's fiance that Kurtz's last words were the horror, the horror? No. I like the story so much the way it is. I don't want to change yeah. the story. <laughs> well, not whether it's a good story. Like, would real life, would real life Marlowe, what should he have done? I'm not saying that the story was bad. The story was good. <laughs> what was your opinion? What is your opinion, Eric? My old opinion was, of course. Of course what? He said the right thing. You should not go to this woman in London and say, by the way, your fiance's last words were the horror of the horror. That accomplishes nothing and is pointlessly cruel. And Marlowe, you did a good thing. You thought that the most important thing was truth, but you kind of grew grew a little bit. Does the story make clear whether she knew about his crimes? Mm-hmm. I don't think she much knew. I I, I don't think I, I I don't remember. I haven't read it in quite some time. I think that would determine my answer because I think if she didn't know anything about it, then saying the horror, the horror, would not have much meaning. It would be disturbing and upsetting. Well, she could have explained it. She could have said, "Huh." He could have, but she didn't ask him that. Why did he say the horror, the horror? Preacher? Well, she might. Have, okay, okay, fair enough, but. But if she knew all about it... Follow-up question, Marla. <laughs> <laughs> and by that, he meant what? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no, who, who knows? But, but if, suppose she knew what was going on, and I'm just making this up now. If not quite complicitous, was nevertheless needed to be shocked a bit more by it, there might be a reason to tell her that's what he said, because it might actually wake her up to the reality of the horror of what she already knew about. If she's really innocent and ignorant of what was going on there, I'm with your first answer. I'm sort of thinking... Uh, you're just poking her in the eye. You're poking her in the eye with this. If what, what do you think, Tara? I almost echo that sentiment um, completely. Because what was worrying me about my first response is I feel like in a gendered way, I was discounting the moral agency of Kurtz's fiance. And if all these people in Europe were told a little bit earlier the horrible crimes that were being done in their name at least it would be on them to do something about it. 
but Marlowe, by hiding it from her, is perpetuating the system that's terrible. And I think as a younger person, I was sort of suckered by thinking in a gendered way, well, that poor thing. <laughs> Why, why should she be able to deal with the, you know, people getting their limbs hacked off in Africa? But why shouldn't she be able to? Well, I think more because you're, uh, you know, you live in a reality and you understand what power does she have to change it, which is quite true. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. she doesn't. Right. If this is his, you know, reporting officer and, and they ask what are the last words, that's an opportunity <laughs> to create change. But his, right. his now, you know, fiance widowed you know whatever that title is right can't really do much so why subject her to something she can't quite have impact right but who knows what she is capable of i don't think she got many lines in this story <laughs> and the story the story might have been gendering her in that way too already to make her sort of put in a vulnerable position yeah but i do think if she knew all about it i would want to say this is what he said you might also say it to the newspapers or address parliament or write to your representative in the House of Lords or whatever. <laughs> sure. But I think you're right. I think if she has no power, and especially if she, here's, here's maybe the stakes are higher. Do you demolish her uh, respect or love for him by telling her too much about, you know, what was going on? I don't know. This could be a really pious lie. It could be like, save, save her the grief of knowing this. But maybe she'll be able to pick a less grody guy on the second time around <laughs> if she learns that the love of her life was actually a scumbag maybe that's helping her first question on the first date views on genocide yes or no <laughs> pro or con <laughs> well i i don't know i after the first break you said you were still you were still terrified how are you doing now tara because we're coming Much to the better. end oh good yeah i feel good yeah. What was the tipping point, if I can ask? I mean, I've never committed genocide. No. Like, I'm a decent person. Maybe occasionally <laughs> I'll tell a white lie. Right. <laughs> we're all entitled to our mistakes right. as long as they don't cause harm. Exactly. So I spirit. think now that we've gone into, you know, heart of darkness, it always makes me feel better. Right. Comparatively, <laughs> we're like, we're like... In, in, a, in a heart of like it could be a little lighter but it's not a heart of darkness yeah. <laughs> okay well thanks so much for joining us tara i really appreciate it yeah thank you folks at home if you like thinking about philosophy and if you're listening to this podcast you do you should uh watch on peacock mrs davis okay everybody uh thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.